Well, you remember my good friend and Scottish pastor Horatio Bonar from the early 1800s. He said, and I don't have to tell you, but I know you know. uh, He said, nothing so quickens prayer as trial. It sends us at once to our knees and shuts the door of our closet behind us. Well, he's right, isn't he? Nothing so quickens prayer as trial. Some of us measure trials differently than others. I have a couple of examples here of prayer during trials that come from, let's just call them younger saints, shall we? (laughs) Dear God, my mom tells me you have a reason for everything on earth. I guess broccoli is one of your mysteries. (laughs) Is broccoli a trial? I don't know. Maybe. Dear God, I hope my dog is with you in heaven. Please take care of him. Sorry if he chews on your sandals. (laughs) Processing the grief there. Yeah, okay. This one might be my favorite. Dear God, I need you to make my mom not allergic to cats. I really want a cat, and I really don't want to ask my mom to move out. (laughs) Life is full of trials. What what can we say? Now, we hear those humorous examples from kids, and the fact is, um, you know, as we grow up, we realize that Man, it would be easier if those were just the trials we face, those silly, simple things, preferences, conveniences, first world problems, we might say now. But the fact is that as as we age and as we experience life, we experience the brokenness of this world. And maybe you've been at the place where, well, prayer was quickened in your life. Nothing so quickens prayer as trial, that you experienced a trial or you are experiencing a trial And you have cried out to God. You've cried out to God to right a wrong. You've cried out to God to bring justice to a situation. You've cried out to God for healing or for relief of pain. You've cried out to God because of circumstances in your family, in your finances, in your workplace, at school. And maybe if you were were being just unfiltered and honest, you might even say, you know what? I cried out to God in my time of trial and it feels like Nothing happened. It feels like he hasn't answered. You know, we have this category where sometimes we talk about unanswered prayer. But I I think that that title is actually problematic for us. Because we feel like prayer isn't answered, number one, if nothing happens. So if we pray for something, relief from a situation, we pray for a specific request for something to to come to pass, and it doesn't come to pass, we feel like, oh, well, there was no answer. Or sometimes we pray for something, and the opposite happens. Well, we pray, God, that you would heal this person who's sick, and then they die. Or we would pray for this situation to go this way, and it goes that way. And we might feel like and categorize that as unanswered prayer. But if we're reading the scriptures carefully, and if we're paying close attention to what God reveals about himself and about us, we learn that every prayer of the saints will be answered. Now that's a bold statement. Is that true? Every prayer of the saints will be answered? Well, we're not saying, and I want to be really clear, we're not saying 
that God will ordain everything that you want to happen. Right? That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that every prayer of the saints is heard by our good and great God. And every concern that drives us to our knees, that causes us to go in that closet and shut the door and plead with God, right? Every concern that drives us there will be addressed. There's an encouragement to prayer this morning from an unusual place here in Revelation chapter 8. So let's pay attention to these verses and let's see what's going on and see what we can learn about not only prayer, but how we should respond in the midst of circumstances that drive us to our knees. Let's pick it up here in chapter 8, verse 1. Now remember, we're in the middle of uh, what has been the opening and the breaking of the, the seven seals. Remember, there was that scroll, and the lamb took the scroll from the father because only the lamb is worthy to break the seals. And on the occasion of the breaking of the seals, we saw an outpouring of, uh, or an initial down payment of God's judgment on the earth. And, and yes, there's hard circumstances but that believers experience, but they're protected from God's judgment in chapter 7 as they're sealed, remember, and protected from the outpouring of God's judgment. There's been a pause. We had the breaking of six seals, and we're waiting for the seventh seal. I know some of you have been losing sleep the last couple weeks, so we finally got here. We're going to get to the breaking of the seventh seal this morning, but this is a, it's a little bit different, and there's a pause leading up to the seventh seal. By the way, there will be a pause leading up to the seventh trumpet, and there will be a pause leading up to the seventh bowl, so we'll see that pattern repeated in Revelation, but there's a pause for a reason. It's to help us to think and consider carefully what's about to happen. So look at chapter 8, verse 1 here in Revelation Chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now let's just pause right there. Up to this point, as John has been given this spiritual vision of heaven, as he has been transported spiritually into the throne room of heaven, which we found out in a couple of hints last in the last chapter, that the throne room of heaven also functions as the temple of God, right? So here he's been in the, the presence of God in the throne room with the other angels that are attending the Lord. And what's been happening, we've seen it over and over again, chapter 4, 5, on into 6 and 7, that there are these songs of praise that keep uh, uh, being, uh, or that the angels are erupting in, or that the saints are erupting in. There's, there's a proclamation of God's holiness. There's praising of the lamb because he is worthy. There's praising because all blessing and honor and glory is, is uh, rightly uh, attributed to God, the father, God, the son. And so we have, uh, we have this proclamation of worship. Uh, it, it, listen, heaven hasn't been quiet in the last four chapters or three chapters. And then we get to verse one here, chapter eight. He opens the seventh seal. We anticipate God's judgment But instead of anything happening, there's silence for half an hour. Now, we're not terribly comfortable with silence. Yeah, I wondered how long you could go. So just so we're clear, you went about a second and a half, right? We're not terribly comfortable with silence. What's going on here? The silence is a silence of anticipation. It's almost as if there's a catching of breath in heaven and a holding of that breath. And what has the sixth seal revealed? The sixth seal revealed God's final ultimate judgment. Just a little picture of it. 
And then in chapter 7, we had the reminder, don't worry. God's judgment is not poured out on the saints. God's judgment is not poured out on those who have trusted in Christ and have protection in Christ. In Christ, you are protected from the judgment of God. But now, the the seventh seal is broken, and there's this (gasps) waiting on God to act. What is next? Waiting for God to, to emerge for this judgment to be poured out on the earth. Well, what's going on with the waiting in heaven, the silence for half an hour? Waiting for God's judgment is an act of faith. Waiting for God's judgment is an act of faith. We have biblical precedent for understanding this silence to be a precursor in anticipation of God's judgment. It's not just the context, which I think is actually clear here in Revelation, but also in Zechariah 2.13. You might remember another apocalyptic vision where uh, God is showing his people the fact that he will indeed judge the nations that had attacked Israel. And he says, let all humanity be silent before the Lord, for from his holy dwelling he has roused himself. Let all humanity be silent because God is coming. And the point is, he's coming to judge those who have done wrong. And so there's an appropriate silence and, and a, a, an appropriate level of awe and respect for God as he is about to judge. And again, we're anticipating here the ultimate judgment. And so there's this silence in heaven. Of course, you find a similar uh, uh, sentiment in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent, right? Heaven pauses here and is waiting on God to act. Now, we don't like silence. Why don't we like silence? Most of us don't like silence. Why not? Well, when we stop and we're just quiet and we're not distracted, maybe our our hearts and minds settle on our larger troubles and concerns. You ever had that happen to you when you lay down at night and you finally have, have turned off Netflix and you finally you know, got everything put down and the kids are finally asleep and you have that moment of peace, but it's not a moment of peace. It's a moment where the things that are really bugging you finally are able to kind of express themselves in your mind and you're like, oh yeah, I got that going on. Maybe that's why we don't like silence. Or maybe we don't like silence because we're addicted to trivial entertainment it's not a new problem, but man, all the, the buzzes and dings and all the alerts and all the noises, they just certainly don't help. Where we just have got grown accustomed to doing stuff and stuff that doesn't mean much. Maybe we don't like silence because we struggle to depend on God in general. Sometimes we just feel like, I'm supposed to be doing something. I should be fixing this. I should be saying something. I should be the one acting. And in this silence in heaven, there's just a beautiful revelation here of, I think, a moment when, when the angels and the saints just collectively say, we must wait on the Lord to make this right. And so they're silent. Can I encourage you? In the midst of very busy lives, we need some of this. We need to understand that this silence in heaven is a good thing. I remember many years ago uh, when I was on my first uh, time in Israel, um, we were there for you know, a longer period of time but the whole semester, and so we had a chance to visit some lesser visited sites. And so we're on this bus, and uh, the professor takes us out, and this is in southern Israel, 
to what is now what theologians call it the middle of nowhere. And uh, it, was, it was the biblical middle of nowhere. And, uh, and there was no, there was barely any plant life, you know, out here. There was barely a bug uh, to be seen. And so the assignment was we had to scatter right there within, within the eye shot of the bus. We had to scatter in the wilderness and just take 20 minutes to just sit. And it is the most silent place on earth I have ever been. And it was creepy. <laughs> because we don't ever just stop. And there's, I think, a helpful spiritual discipline of just resting and just saying, you know what? I am dependent on God. And I'm not going to do, I'm not going to push, I'm not going to act, I'm not going to speak, I'm not going to listen to music, I'm not going to check a text, I'm not going to do social media. I am just going to stop. I am just going to be silent before the Lord. Now, the silence here, contextually, is again anticipating God's judgment. There's a dependence in that things are not going the way they should go, and God will intervene. And so there's a waiting here, a dependence on God, a waiting for God to make wrongs right. Sitting in silence brings our dependence on God to the forefront of our souls. It is a good thing to do. We don't dictate timetables to God. That's another thing that's really interesting about this moment for for about a half an hour. You know, you read as many commentaries as you read, you get a different take on why a half an hour. Half an hour? Because God said so. That's why. Okay? Because, you know what? If you're in that waiting room, and I know you've been there, you're going, uh, I got things, I got plans. Let's speed this up. I got things that I want to have happen when I want them to happen. But the waiting in silence, the, the, the silent pause here in heaven in that half an hour just says, you know what? Nobody dictates to God his timetable. Even if it's a good thing, like the righting of all wrongs and the ultimate judgment of evil, this is a good thing, but it's on God's time, not our time. We don't give God direction. Isaiah 40, verse 13, you remember that. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or who gave him counsel? That's a rhetorical question. No one. No one. Remember when God asked Job at the end of Job, where were you when, uh, when I created everything? Did you consult me on plans for creating the universe? Oh no, because you weren't in existence yet, buddy. Right? We don't counsel God. You know, often, and this even is sometimes reflected in our prayer lives, we treat our prayer lives like comment cards or like online reviews for God. Well, let me tell you, I'll give God three and a half stars this week. Because I had to go through this, and this person did that, and I didn't get this, and this is, or I'm facing this trial, and this has been, this is really hard, and so, yeah. I mean, you remember the jokes in 2020, they were going to do the 2020 review, and you could get a shirt that had one star, you know, the 2020 review, year in, year in review. Well, that's really a theological statement. We're saying, God, we're, we're criticizing you for your ordained plan for the universe. I don't like what you've chosen to do or how you've chosen to do it. There is constantly, in our culture especially, a constant temptation to impatience. Um, it's such a joy for us to have Matt and Sharina with us this morning, and they're talking about their five-hour canoe ride to get from the place where they're going to get to on the island to then the next place where they got to be. And I'm, you're just going, I can't sit in the car for five hours. And that's with my phone and radio and all the rest of the things going on. I mean, a five-hour canoe ride? Is there an entertainment system on that canoe? Like, we struggle. I struggle to be patient. 
But waiting on God is good for us. I just want to highlight a few ways, and we'll get on with these verses. But waiting on God is good for us. It is good for us to be silent before the Lord. Why? Waiting on God, first of all, acknowledges his holiness. Zechariah 2.13 and Habakkuk 2.20 certainly influence Revelation 8.1. That it is God's holiness that causes us to stand in silence before him. Waiting on God acknowledges that God is the creator and we are not. And he is distinct from his creation. And that is good. Waiting on God also acknowledges his sovereignty. Again, it, it's, it's on his timetable for when he chooses to act. When he chooses to, to dish out justice. And really that's the ultimate concern here in Revelation 8. The, the righting of all wrongs. The dealing with evil. But it is in God's perfect timing that that will happen. So it is good for us to wait on God because it reminds us that he is sovereign and we are not. Waiting on God also helps us to admit that only God can actually bring about true justice, right? This is the temptation. When we are not patient with God with regards to justice and the righting of wrongs, we're saying, I think I am qualified to dish out justice. I'm sorry, Batman. You are not qualified to dish out justice. That vengeance never works. Vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. Remember from Romans 12, also in Deuteronomy 32. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And so when we wait on the Lord, we acknowledge that it is only his perfect justice that will right all wrongs in this universe. Waiting on God also requires, it demands humility. We're insofar as we acknowledge God is holy, that he is sovereign, that it's his justice this world needs. We then also say, you know what, we're dependent on it. I got to tell you, you know, we struggle in our world because it's broken. We struggle with our sin, and, and rightly, often we talk about confessing our sin, remembering the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. Absolutely. There is, there is so much good for us to be reminded of those sweet truths in the gospel. We need to rehearse them weekly, daily, even. But there's also, I think, a moment here to acknowledge in the broader context of Revelation, this whole system is broken, the one we live under. And I'm not just talking about in these United States. The world is broken. Governments, every government is broken. It doesn't work right. And so we face constant challenges. We face, uh, you know, there's been a, a debate recently about the systemic nature of sin. And yes, sin infects systems. And so yes, laws are broken because sin causes us to write unjust laws. And people groups treat other people poorly and wrongly because of the systemic nature of sin. As sin influences systems. That happens. It definitely happens. And will continue to happen. Because we live in a broken world. And so there's this moment here. I think there's a recognition in Revelation 8, just in verse 1, that heaven is silent before the Lord because it is only God's perfect justice that can fix these problems. When we, when we forget to think about the macro picture of sin and we're just focusing on our sin, if we're thinking, I'm struggling, I'm struggling with bitterness, I'm struggling with impatience, I'm struggling with whatever, and we go, well, maybe I trust in Jesus, I can make progress in that. And maybe sometimes that's anti-gospel where we think, I need to fix it. But let's just say in the best case scenario, we say, yeah, Jesus died for my anger, he died for my bitterness, I can trust him so I can address that. But how does trusting Jesus fix the problem in the government? There's no immediate solution there. And we might argue rightfully that the advancement of the gospel in a culture will lead to more people becoming believers, and that's going to solve the long lines at the DMV. Can I get an amen? Like, that, like that's the thing. 
we're just, we're just not there yet in the state of New Jersey, right? No, because even as more people come to trust in Jesus, the system is still broken. The sin's effects are pervasive. And so we won't see an immediate, oh, well, this many people have become believers and now the system will be better. Maybe, yes, in little bits and pieces here and there. But on the whole, we must be silent before the Lord and wait on his intervention because only the justice of God will right the wrongs of this broken world. That's what's going on in verse 1. It is good for us to wait on the Lord. So what happens next? Watch verse 2. The silence gives way. Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God, possibly previously described in Revelation, these seven angels, and seven trumpets were given to them. So now we're transitioning from the seals to the trumpets, which I think is an intensification, a further revelation of God's judgment. I think looking forward to to the final judgment. That's what we're looking forward to. So these seven angels take these seven trumpets. But watch, before we get to the trumpets, verse 3, another angel, here the eighth angel, with a golden incense burner, came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. So again, here we are, just you got to think about the heavenly throne room here, the visionary form, the apostle John and the spirits taken there, and he sees this angel. And so there's an altar there because there's an altar in the real temple, and there's a, an altar for incense, burning incense. But here this angel takes this big massive, it's a, like a golden bowl essentially for burning incense, okay? This big massive bowl. And so he has all this incense in it to offer a sacrifice with what? In verse 3, with the prayers of all the saints. I want you to note carefully the language here. The prayers of how many of the saints? Tell me. All. Now we've been introduced to the prayers of some of the saints in chapter 6. Those who were martyred for their faith. And there we read that their souls were waiting under the altar. And they were crying out, how long, O Lord? How long until you make it right? How long until you rightly vindicate us? How long until our deaths, which are a wrong, are seen to have justice? Those prayers, but also the prayers of all the saints. Brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you're in this verse. Your prayers are here. What happens with those prayers? Verse 4. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The offering of incense, right? The idea is that it creates a pleasing aroma to the Lord. God had specific instructions in the law about what could be offered as incense, what the formula was for the incense to be offered, because he determines what is pleasing to him. But here, what is, what is purified and sanctified and given as an offering to the Lord? Beloved brothers and sisters, it's our prayers. And the, the vision is that the, as the smoke ascends before the throne of God, that our prayers Your prayers and my prayers are heard by God. Our prayers are heard by God. God hears our prayers. 
there is a sense perhaps in the offering that our prayers are made holy as they are offered to the Lord. You know what that means? They are corrected. <laughs> Remember that line in Romans 8 about how the Spirit uh, intercedes with inexpressible groaning on our behalf? Because let's be honest, sometimes we don't pray right. But God hears it right. And I, I think the offering of the prayer here is actually, it's a, I think it's a visual representation of the Spirit's work interceding on our behalf for our groanings. Now, what prayers are we talking about? Well, the prayers for, for example, God's will to be done. Remember Jesus taught us to pray for that in Matthew 6? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those prayers. Or prayers for God to judge the wicked. When we experience the brokenness of the world and we're asking God, please intercede and make it right. Those prayers he hears. Prayers for God to alleviate suffering. There's a lot that fall in that category, aren't there? Where we pray for alleviation of emotional suffering because we're hurting because of something that's happened or something that might happen. Or we're, we're praying because of physical suffering because we're in pain or someone we love is in pain and we're asking God to alleviate suffering. Those prayers, the things that are burdening us and we're, we're scared for what might happen or, or we're asking to God, for God to intervene on this or that. Listen, the prayers of all the saints here in this vision are offered to the Lord and are burnt before him and given as an offering, which means that God hears all of our prayers. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we can say with confidence, God hears our prayers. You know what Satan wants you to think? He wants you to think, when you pray, and it seems like an unanswered prayer, I'm going to put that in air quotes for you, right? Unanswered prayer. When it seems like there's an unanswered prayer, Satan wants you to think that God doesn't hear your prayer. And listen, when you feel like God doesn't hear your prayer, you get right to Revelation 8, okay? God hears. Satan maybe says God can't hear because of all the cell phones, interferes. That's what he'll tell you. God doesn't hear. Or maybe Satan will tell you, God doesn't care. You know, rightly, God hears it all. He hears everything. Maybe, maybe Satan's convinced you God doesn't care about your situation because it didn't change. Or the opposite happened of what you wanted to have happen. And so you think, oh, God doesn't care about me. That's what Satan wants you to think. Therefore, God's ignoring me. Maybe Satan says, you're not important enough. Right? You're not important enough. God doesn't care about what's going on with you. He's ignoring you. But brothers and sisters, this picture, it's actually a beautiful picture of the prayers of the saints being offered here with this burning of incense. It's a picture of the fact that God is pleased by our prayers. And he hears every one of them. Maybe you're here this morning and you're discouraged. Maybe you're discouraged specifically because you've been pursuing the Lord on a particular issue. And you're just not sure what God's doing or you're frustrated or you wish something else would happen. There's comfort in this passage for you, that God hears your prayers. Well, we have to battle the lies of Satan with the truth. Yes, God is omniscient. There is no prayer offered by a saint that God is unaware of. Whether you have to pray silently in that workplace because of the trial you're going through, or whether you just feel like there's a lot going on and, and you're not sure if God knows, God knows. God is omniscient. He knows. And yes, God is sovereign. Again, we have to remind ourselves of this truth. 
He is sovereign over it all and therefore worthy of our prayer. But brothers and sisters, God is good. He is good. And so we cannot and we must not allow ourselves to walk into discouragement and despair, thinking somehow that God's missed it or that we're not on God's radar or that he's actually made a wrong turn here in his ordained will for the universe. No, God is good. And we'll need that truth, especially in those hard times when we've shut the door of the closet behind us. God is good. And guess what? We know it. God loves us. He's not just good generically. He's good specifically. We know that, of course, expressed most clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. So maybe you're struggling this morning. You need to know that God hears our prayers. Now, I just want to make a a clarification. The prayers of the saints, right? The prayers of the saints. Because those who haven't come to faith in Jesus do not have this relationship with God. And that doesn't mean that God is not aware of their suffering and their circumstances. He certainly is. It doesn't change the fact that God will ultimately pour out his justice. We're going to be all into that in Revelation and make all wrongs right. He certainly will. But there's a difference in the prayers of an unbeliever and the prayers of a believer. Whereas God is aware of the prayers of the unbeliever, but the prayers of a believer are pleasing to the Lord. Right? And so there's a difference here. We want to make that distinction. God hears our prayers, the prayers of the church. But that's not all. He doesn't just hear the prayer. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, but what about the answer? What about the answer? Watch verse 5. This is actually unexpected and stunning. Verse 5. The angel, this is that eighth angel with the big bowl, the incense. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is a vision. It's a symbol that represents something true and specific, especially in this case about what God will do. So the angel here has this bowl, the same bowl he used to offer all the prayers of the saints. But then he puts in the bowl from the altar, this fire from the altar, pure fire, fire that represents the holiness and righteousness of God in its purest form, his pure judgment. Right there it is, the fire in the the bowl here of, of, of incense. And what does the angel do with the incense? He throws it. Like the biggest frisbee you can imagine, like boom, you know, boom, he chucks this thing down and full of fire, the pure, holy fire of God. And he throws it where? Down to the earth. And what accompanies the throwing of this incense burner down to the earth? Thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, an earthquake, intense, right? An intense effect on creation. Why? Because it's not a time for silence anymore. God is coming. And he has aroused himself from his holy temple, and he is coming. And that means his judgment is coming. And so there, there are physical signs that the judgment of God is, is imminent on the earth. And so there's, there's flashes of lightning, and there's thunder. It's scary, and it should be scary. But note the connection in the vision. Don't miss this, and this is the whole point here. The point is that God, in pouring out his judgment on the earth, he is answering the prayers offered of the saints. We don't connect these two enough. 
that the prayer, that our prayers, the things that we are struggling with, and we go to the Lord and we're saying, God, these are the things that are going on that aren't right in my world. And even when we imperfectly understand them, the Spirit, right, He perfects that prayer, and there it is offered to the Lord, and He hasn't forgotten. He collects each one of them. They're collected into that incense offering. But the day that God pours out His judgment, His final judgment on earth, what is happening? God is answering the prayers of the saints. Not just the prayers of the martyred saints, who, yes, cry out, Lord, how long until you make our death right? But the prayers of all the saints. Brothers and sisters, this is why we can make the statement, and it's accurate. Your prayers will be answered. Every single one. Every single one. How? Well, by God judging the world. The assurance of answered prayer tomorrow has an effect on us today. What does it do? It gives us assured hope today. The assurance that in the future, when God judges the earth, that our prayers will be answered, that all those evils and wrongs will be resolved, that suffering will be alleviated, right? That, that, that hope that we look forward to, it gives us a, a present hope today, an assurance today that God is trustworthy. Because we're not there yet. What's described in Revelation 8, it is a future event. We're not there yet. So what's happening right now is that we're walking through the brokenness of the world. And yes, when you're suffering, pray to the Lord. When people around you are hurting, pray to the Lord. When we see God's will not being done, we pray and ask for God's will to be done. Absolutely. And just because God doesn't answer in that moment doesn't mean he won't answer. He will answer every prayer. In his ultimate judgment. And that gives us an assured hope today. The assurance of answered prayer tomorrow gives us assured hope today. You remember what Charlie Spurgeon said. God's delays are not denials. He's the best. God's delays are not denials. God may not make it right today. That's a fact. He may choose to wait. But don't mistake a delay for a denial. Just because he's not doing what you wanted right now doesn't mean he will not make it right. And so there's, again, I think a sense of humility here in dependence on the Lord for answering our prayers ultimately. You know, I was talking to a dear brother this week and um, his daughter had had some health problems um, when she was younger. And they had this debate in their family, a discussion theologically. Dad, should I pray for healing or should I pray for faith and patience? Right? That is a very real struggle. I don't know if you've been there where you're like, do, which one? Do I pray for healing? And I don't think the answer is which one. I think it's both. Okay, we pray for both. But I think the, having the conversation was interesting. And it was really funny because she had landed on, um, you know, we pray for faith and, and patience, not for healing. That was kind of her thing. Like, she didn't want to demand that God heal her of her affliction. And uh, it was actually uh, over a decade later, and she goes to the doctor. This is a true story. And she goes to the doctor, and she says, well, you know, the, I have such and such a condition, and so I can't, you know, yada, yada, and all the rest. And uh, the doctor says, no, you don't. She says, no. She says, I have the test. From when I was little, I could show you the test that I have this condition. The doctor says, well, I can show you this test right here. You don't have that condition. Her dad had always told her, you pray for healing. <laughs> and so she calls her dad. She goes, dad, you were right. <laughs> You were right. 
Sometimes God does choose to answer, right, in that immediate moment. But you know what? Her being healed of that condition, that doesn't mean all sickness is gone. That doesn't mean she won't get sick with something else. So even in, even in little moments of answered prayer, there's a forward looking here. The assurance of tomorrow that there will be a day when an angel throws down the judgment of God upon the earth. We're going to get all into that here as we keep going through Revelation. That, that pouring out of God's judgment. But you've got to know that the pouring out of God's judgment is an answer to all of our prayers. Because it's the day when he finally makes all wrongs right. His delays, which you and I may experience today, are not denials. So how should we respond to these five verses? Well, brothers and sisters, at the bare minimum, we should pray. I mean, we must pray for all of it. Pray for God's righteous judgment. Yes, absolutely. Pray for God's will to be done. Yes, absolutely, on earth as in heaven. Pray for repentance. Pray for spiritual revival in our, in our generation, in our community, across the world. Yes, absolutely. Pray for healing when we're sick. Yes, absolutely. Pray for those who are suffering emotionally, financially, physically. Yes, absolutely. Pray for the persecuted church, as we think about in the context of Revelation, and those who may give their lives for their faith. Yes, we pray for them. Pray for Jesus to return. Absolutely. What we must not do in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of feeling and living through the brokenness of the world, is we must not stop praying. Pray. And you can pray with confidence, knowing that every one of your prayers is collected in that incense altar. Every one of your prayers is precious to the Lord. And even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit not only interprets our prayer, but we can be confident that God will answer it just right. So keep praying. A general encouragement here for you. If you don't know how to pray, you don't have to. Follow the word of God. There are a ton of great examples for us um, as we look to the word of God that are instructive for us on how to pray. And not just the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, but that's a great place to start. But you've got prayers from the Apostle Paul and Ephesians and Philippians that will instruct you on how to pray for spiritual priorities. You can look at the Old Testament and see prayers of confession in Psalm 51 or in uh, Ezra. You know, you can see a Daniel, prayer of confession. I mean, there's all kinds of, you go through the Psalms, you learn how to pray, just praising God for his goodness and for who he is and how to pray in light of the fact that somebody wicked gets the promotion when you should have gotten it or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of examples for how to pray. Let the word of God inform your prayer, right? And I, sometimes, you know... I think sometimes our prayers suffer just because we're just not trying, you know, that that maybe we haven't put any effort into it. But it is good for us to be praying. God hears these prayers, and if we don't know how to pray, let the Word of God instruct you in how to pray. But man, let's be a praying people. We remember the Apostle Paul's instruction to us in 1 Thessalonians 5, that we should pray constantly, pray without ceasing, which doesn't mean long prayers. It means frequency of prayers, right? Sometimes we mistakenly believe that there's more godliness in a longer prayer. Um, not necessarily so, especially before a meal, okay? So a, a long prayer before a meal is something that's part of what's wrong in this world, I think. But uh, no. No, pray without ceasing. Pray in the morning. Yeah. Start your day. Pray on your commute. Pray while you're brushing your teeth. Pray while you're in class. Pray before you go into that meeting. Pray as a family. Yes, pray over meals. Pray for people that are struggling. 
When things aren't going well, pray. Bring them to the Lord. When things are going well, pray and thank God that they're going well. Pray, pray, pray. Why? Because God hears and God will answer our prayers. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? This is all rooted in the fact that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, who died for our sins and rose from the dead, has been given the keys to to death and to Hades. And, And he has the authority over life and death, and he is the judge. And so, listen, if you haven't trusted in Christ, uh, the reality is, not only can I not guarantee you that your prayers are heard in this way, they are not heard in this way, but also, when this happens, when God does prod his judgment on the world, you'll be on the receiving end of that judgment. That you're not protected from it. Chapter 7 makes clear that, that those who trusted in Christ were protected from God's judgment. There truly is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And maybe this morning... There's just a little bit of a warning here to say, yes, there will be a day of reckoning. And maybe today's the day when you actually transition from the losing team to the winning team. When you transition from the, being the object of God's wrath to being one who's trusted in the Lord and whose prayers will be answered on that day when all wrongs are made right. We pray in the name of Jesus because he died and rose from the dead. And because he is the one who will ultimately make it happen. It's Jesus' return that occasions the outpouring of God's judgment. And we'll get there in Revelation, right? We're going to get there. So it's because of Jesus that we have real hope. Again, assured, uh, the, the promise of assured answers tomorrow to prayer. What does that do? That gives us assured hope today. So we, we have that hope because of Jesus. But this passage is not just about prayer It's maybe primarily about prayer, but it's also about the life of faith. Because remember the seven churches that John's writing to. Remember the circumstances that they're going through. They've lost jobs because of their faith. Some of them have known brothers and sisters who who were killed because of their faith or imprisoned. In general, the culture's gotten awkward with them about their faith, much like our culture is today, where it increasingly is just awkward between believers and unbelievers. And so they're in this weird spot, and they're, they're asking the question, maybe, should I keep going in this? Should I continue to trust the Lord in this? This could get serious. This could get dicey. Do do I continue on in faith? And maybe part of what's going on in in chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, is an argument to not only don't stop praying, but don't stop trusting. Don't stop trusting. Again, the assurance of answered prayer tomorrow gives us assured hope today. Not just to pray for God's will to be done, but then also to live in light of that hope. Because, and just again, speaking honestly, I find it's hardest to live by faith when we are under the gun, when we're hurting. It's hardest to trust God in those moments when we just want relief and I'll take any fix. I don't care if it's godly or not. I just want to be at peace on that. I just want the problem fixed. And sometimes God's ordained will is that it wouldn't be fixed. It may get harder. And maybe it's his will that we join those, those souls under the altar from chapter 6 who've given their very lives for their faith in Jesus. The question is, will I keep walking in faith when it costs me? Will I keep walking in faith-driven obedience to Jesus when it's hard and it's awkward and it's weird? You see, the assurance of answered prayer tomorrow gives us assured hope today. 
He does hear our prayers, and therefore it is warranted and even best for us to walk by faith right now, even though it's not all better just yet. There's an alleviation of burden here. My friend Calvin said it this way, talking about when Christians pray during trials. He said they pray relying upon God's goodness. That's what we're doing. Even when we, when we sit in silence before the Lord, we're relying on his goodness. But he said then they are relieved of the difficulty of bearing them. When we rely on God's goodness, we are relieved of the difficulty of bearing the burdens because we think it's my burden to bear. And when we go to the Lord in prayer, relying on his goodness, he reminds us, nope, that's mine. You know, sometimes we talk about circles of responsibility, like what's what I'm responsible for. I keep that in view. Guess what God's circle of responsibility is? All of it. It's all in his circle of responsibility. And so Calvin said, when we pray, relying on his goodness, we are relieved of the difficulty of bearing them and are solaced. That means encouraged by hope. We are solaced and hope for escape and deliverance. Not like a generic, I hope it happens, but like, no, God is faithful. I'm good. I think this is what's driving the apostle Paul in Philippians 4, when he talks about bringing our concerns before God in prayer. And then he gives us the peace which passes all understanding, a peace that the world cannot understand because they haven't had their burdens relieved by trusting in the goodness of God. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I just want to argue to you that it is right for you to be assured of the hope that we have in Jesus. And that hope should motivate us to pray and trust him today. Why? Because when we rely on his goodness, we are relieved of that burden. It's not ours to carry. It's his. And there will be a day when all wrongs are made right. Until then, the question is, will we trust him? So now, would you please join me in prayer? Lord, again, we pause this morning and we, we pause acknowledging that you are the holy creator of this universe. Lord Jesus, we pause in light of the fact that you died for our sins, and rose from the dead. And Spirit, we confess that were it not for your regenerating work, helping us to confess of our sins and turn to you, we would be lost. And so we praise you this morning. Lord, we confess that our world is broken, and it's not just broken because of our sin, that there's a collective brokenness in this world because of generations of sin compounding its consequences. And Lord, when we see these wrongs around us, when we experience them as victims, Lord, when we wrong others, sometimes, Lord, we can, we can lose our faith in you. We can lose sight of what you're doing. We can question. And Lord, we can give in to frustration. We can give in to discouragement and despair. But Lord, we praise you for the truths that we've seen in this passage of Scripture in Revelation 8, that you will answer every prayer of the saints. And that you will answer it ultimately in the pouring out of your judgment on the earth. And it's a true and a good justice that you will bring, Lord. And so we ask now that you would help us, because of that assurance of answered prayer tomorrow, you would help us to trust you today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to pray more. Lord, I ask that you would help us to say no to distractions from prayer when we prioritize other things, especially other things that are trivial and meaningless. 
Lord, we pray that we would pray with honesty and we thank you that your spirit interprets these prayers. And Lord, we thank you that you love us, that you hear each prayer, and that we can be confident in your ultimate answer. In the meantime, Lord, help us to trust you by faith, to walk by faith, even as we experience the brokenness of this world. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your powerful name, because of your death and resurrection. Amen.